Growth is only a 200-year-old phenomenon. It, it took human beings uh, 250,000 years to reach the first billion people in 1800. And then in just two centuries, we went up by a factor of six or seven. So in one two thousandth as much time, we uh, increased by a factor of seven our population and our, income, our, our global economy increased um, a hundredfold. So we, we've got an enormous problem here of, of our perception of reality. Um, what we take to be normal, this two or three percent per year growth that Richard talked about, is the single most abnormal period in human history. And it's only been going on for a couple of centuries. Population 8 Billion is a limited series podcast meant to help you better understand what a world of 8 billion people means for the planet, the environment, and the future of our diverse societies. Through interviews with scientists and activists, we delve into why the size and growth of the human population is a subject that deserves your attention, and some of the forces that will drive population growth and decline in the not-too-distant future. We also explore how to make our current population more sustainable, why it is important for women to take a lead role in these conversations, and why the rights of other species and nature should be a part of the puzzle too. The podcast is produced by Czech environmental journalist Veronika Perkova and hosted by Population Media Center. Hello, welcome to the first episode of the Population 8 Billion podcast. News about global temperatures rising, biodiversity plunging, soils being degraded and toxic waste being dumped in the ocean are everywhere you look. And yet it seems like we sweep them under the carpet so we can enjoy our big party. Perpetual growth, yes. Fossil fuels, yes. Let's pump out some more barrels. More meat, yes, don't worry about the forests. But as everyone knows, each great party ends. Right now, we are standing at a point when we can consciously decide whether to continue our business as usual or transition to a more sustainable economy and society. Which one will it be? That's up to us to decide, say two subject matter experts, William Rees and Richard Heinberg, that we invited to this episode. Dr. William, also called Bill Rees, is an ecologist, ecological economist, former director and professor emeritus of the University of British Columbia's School of Community and Regional Planning in Vancouver. He has authored hundreds of academic papers and popular articles on humanity's sustainability crisis. Bill is best known for originating and co-developing ecological footprint analysis with Mattis Wackernagel and other graduate students. EFA, the ecological footprint analysis, is now widely used by scientists, businesses, governments and institutions to monitor human demands on ecosystems and document population overshoot. Richard Heinberg is Senior Fellow of Post Carbon Institute and is regarded as one of the world's foremost advocates for a shift away from our current reliance on fossil fuels. He is the author of 14 books and hundreds of articles on society's current energy and environmental sustainability crisis. His latest book is Power, Limits and Prospects for Human Survival. 
He has also delivered hundreds of lectures on energy and climate issues on six continents. Bill and Richard, thank you very much for accepting the invitation. I'm really glad to talk to you. I've read a number of your articles and listened to your lectures and found them really interesting. Even though I know that this is probably going to be a very tough conversation, I look forward to it. So let's do it. Thank you. Okay. Bill, many people argue that a growing global population is not what is causing climate change, biodiversity loss, desertification and pollution, but rather it's the overconsumption of resources, especially fossil fuels, by the global north and especially by the richest classes. What's your take on this? I think we have to understand that the principal driver of the human ecological crisis is overconsumption. But we have to recognize that every human being added to this planet is a consumer. And the simple reality is right now we can show definitively that the increase in population is adding more to consumption simply because more and more people means more and more consumption than is an increase in uh, consumption by individuals. For example, in the North, and it's true, the, the richest million or billion and a half people use about half of the world's biocapacity. But their footprint, their damage, as it were, hasn't increased on a per capita basis for a couple of decades. And so the entire contribution of, of their uh, impact in the last few decades has been the result of population growth, even in the rich countries. If we go to the poorest countries, their eco-footprints, the amount they consume per capita, hasn't changed at all, even though the per capita, or rather the gross national product of those countries has increased. So here population growth is absorbing the benefits of economic growth and is 100% responsible for any national increase in impacts. So it's a very difficult question, but the main point is that it's throughput of the economy, consumption and pollution, that results in all of this damage. There are two drivers. One is growing incomes. The second is growing population. But right now, population is actually taking the larger role. Population growth is a major impact on the global ecosystem. And we're displacing. Every additional human displaces other life forms from ecosystems on the planet, hence plunging biodiversity. We simply can't avoid this. So even though the environment is deteriorating, businesses and governments continue business as usual thinking that, okay, there is climate change, wildfires, but things are going to be okay. It's not so bad. Many people are still skeptical about nature degradation and about climate change and even about the fact that we're overshooting the planet. Richard, what data do you have that prove that we're overshooting the planet and that this is really a genuine existential question? The question is where to begin. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the obvious place is with carbon dioxide. I mean, CO2 parts per million in the Earth's atmosphere has increased from 280 parts per million to 420 parts per million during the industrial era. Uh, the oceans are becoming acidified. Uh, according to recent surveys, on average, two-thirds of animals in any given cl class have, have disappeared over the last 50 years. That doesn't mean that, you know, every species has declined by, by two-thirds, but uh, on average, that's, that's 
That's what's happened. We've depleted something like a third of the Earth's topsoil in the past 50 years. And we've also depleted the Earth's stores of uh, minerals and metals, just taking one, copper. Uh, copper prices have gone up 300% in the last few years, and the average grade of copper ore is now down by about 30%. Uh, and that's that's true mostly across the board. And the thing to understand about this, all of this, is that it's accelerating. As a result of the expansion of the economy, we think, well, 2 or 3% economic growth per year is a good thing. But that means the economy is doubling in size every 25 years. So all of these impacts that I've just described, if we continue as, as we're doing now, will double in the next 25 years. And then 25 years after that, there'll be four times as serious as they are now. We're already in overshoot. Look, the simplest definition is that there are too many people consuming and polluting too much. So human beings are depleting ecosystems faster than they can regenerate and dumping wastes into all of the ecosystems, into the ecosphere faster than it can be assimilated. And so we're now no longer living on the natural income of the planet, the annual productivity. We're using all of that up by mid-year, and then we begin after that to consume the standing stock. So Richard mentioned the deteriorating soils and forests. That's because we're currently supporting growth of consumption and population by depleting the absolutely essential biocapacity that we need to survive. And at some point that goes haywire. And just to pick up on his point about exponential growth, in the last 30 years, we've used half the fossil fuels ever consumed by humanity because we've seen this exponential increase. And that means that over the next 30 years, when the economy doubles again, we'll use as much energy as we've used in the entire previous uh, history of the Industrial Revolution, whatever form it might take. And keep in mind, we use energy to exploit everything else. So we're already in overshoot and we're asking the planet to double the impacts that humans are having. It can't really happen in any kind of sustainable way. Why do you think that people still ignore all these news? I mean, we're bombarded by news about land being degraded, 40% of land being degraded that was in the recent global land outlook and about climate change getting worse, wildfires. But, you know... The news are full of it, and people still pretty much ignore this. Why do you think that is? Well, I think we ignore it because we're interested in human interests and activities. And uh, we, we like people, so the fact that there are more people all the time just gives us more things to be interested in. And, of course, companies like to have profits, Investors like to have returns on their investments. So economic growth seems very good for all of these folks. Uh, workers like to have more jobs available to them. Uh, economic growth seems to promise that. So we measure these things. We measure unemployment. We measure economic activity through gross domestic product, GDP. Uh, we measure how well the economy is doing. And we say, good job. And all these other things that we've been talking about are only measured by, you know, researchers at universities and, and scientists with nonprofit organizations and so on. And it makes the news occasionally, but it's just sort of an irritant. 
in people's <laughs> normal daily lives, which are really all about, you know, doing their job and, and making an income and, and hoping that it all goes well. Richard's absolutely right about all of that, of course. But I think you have to keep in mind, uh, Veronica, that not everybody is ignoring this. Ask the people of Pakistan who have been flooded out and dehydrated for the past several months, in fact, years. And there are many other places in the world where people are in absolutely desperate straits as a result of the phenomena that we're talking about. We tend to ignore it in the, in the north, in the rich countries, as it were, the high-income countries. First of all, because our wealth protects us from the worst effects of these damages elsewhere. Uh, that's an extremely important fact to keep in mind. So we are insulated, in fact, from the impact of our own consumption patterns. And there's another thing we have to keep in mind here, that we have been taught, literally, in our universities, to think of, of the economy as a separate system from the ecosphere, that the two aren't any, in any important way connected. So economists will tell us over and over again that the, in a free market, the price mechanism will stimulate innovation and technology will come into play in ways that uh, defeat any impact that depleting resources or environment might have. So we have this mental image of being invincible. It's called human exceptionalism. We're not part of nature. We're not subject to the same laws of, of nature as our other creatures. And so people tend to go along in the belief that we have this separate system yeah, we connect to nature, but it's not that important because technology can substitute for any damage that we cause on the natural environment. And that's a comforting thought. Once you believe that, then there's no limits to growth. And so that's the preferred position that Richard talked about. Everybody's in favor of growing forever. Speaking of the economy and the myth of perpetual growth, how can we transform our economy? Herman Daly had the idea for a steady state economy instead of an economy that's continually growing. Why don't we design an economy that basically just functions within the Earth's biocapacity and then set it on its way and it, it will be able to continue doing what it's doing in perpetuity? There's also the idea of a circular economy, one where we basically recycle everything and therefore in principle that would continue in, in perpetuity too. But the, the difficulty with these kinds of proposals is that if the economy is going to operate within Earth's biocapacity, it first has to get smaller. Uh, simply making our current economy a steady state economy, just you know, getting rid of growth and continuing at the scale that we currently are, won't work. It's too big, as, as Bill was saying, too many people using too much too fast. So the key is to reduce the scale of economic activity and material and energy throughput. And that's the sticking point. That's going to be really difficult because, uh, you know, nobody wants to have to do with less. So the only realistic proposals for doing that have to do with, well, there's a, a movement in Europe called degrowth. And the argument there is, is basically if we stop focusing on uh, things like GDP and focus instead on something like uh, measuring people's happiness and well-being and contentment with their lives – 
so that we, we focus on that and find ways to improve people's satisfaction while actually using less, then we could have actually a better way of life while using less stuff. So is that possible? It's, I don't know, we should find out. <laughs> you know, wh while I was doing research for this interview, I was reading about the Earth Overshoot and Earth Overshoot Day. As Bill mentioned, it marks the day when we've used the resources that the planet can regenerate for the year. And there is a whole list of countries and you can see how many resources they use and how much they pollute, how many planets they would need. There are some countries which really currently only use less than one planet. And these are, for example, Benin, Chad, Honduras, Jamaica, South Sudan and Sri Lanka. Does it mean that we would have to have the living standards of these countries? Ecological footprint analysis suggests that Earth as a whole, that is to say the whole global economy, is about 75% in overshoot. And by the way, that means that even at, if we were to completely average out consumption so that everybody were equal, we'd still be 75% over, which is Richard's point. We, we need a, a massive reduction here in the scale of, of the global economy. As a whole, about 47% uh, reduction in the scale of the global economy. It comes to 75 or 80% in rich countries, is what I meant to say earlier. So can you imagine asking people in wealthy countries uh, to live on a quarter of their present incomes? That's what, what it would really mean at current population levels, which is why the population factor is so important here. It's a very simple matter. I don't understand why people find this confusing. But on a finite planet with a limited solar throughput, the more people, the less there is for everyone. The more people, the less there is for other species. So Richard clearly indicated earlier that the growth of the human enterprise means the diminishment, the reduction of all other nature. And it's something like 70% loss of, of uh, vertebrate uh, populations in the last 30 years as a result of the human growth. So what we get, other species don't, except we depend on these other species to maintain the ecological integrity of the systems that support us. So we're in a self-defeating mode here. Further growth will undercut our own capacity to survive, never mind to grow. So yes, we need a smaller economy. We need to do that both through a, a massive shift in lifestyles and, and the degrowth de movement is on board with that. But they tend to ignore the population question. And we really do need over the next 100 years or so, a global program for the reduction of the human population to the level that could be sustained on Earth indefinitely at a reasonably decent material standard. And that might be between one to three billion people, depending on who you speak to. We're going to talk about the sustainable population, but but before we do that, I would still like to analyze this sustainable economy or smaller economy. How how can it be done concretely? You know, it just sounds so unrealistic because people benefit from this perpetual growth and companies and investors, you know, so can you even convince these? We need uh, different kinds of incentives. Right now, all of our societal incentives are in the direction of, of growth, of increasing the scale of our systems and our consumption. I spoke just a moment ago about, you know, focusing on happiness. I mean, there, there, there actually is a proposal for replacing 
GDP with GNH, gross national happiness. And, uh, and there's even a country, Bhutan, that's been applying this and researching it for, for decades now. And with some success, a lot of us really aren't that happy pursuing life in industrial societies where we're chasing paychecks and, and dodging traffic and spending all of our days looking at computer screens and uh, you know, deleting emails. And, you know, <laughs> is this the best way to live? I'm sure it isn't. You know, we human beings uh, are, are incredibly innovative and a lot of what we do is about producing beauty. You know, we're, we're capable of producing, you know, incredibly wonderful music and art and theater and dance and, and poetry and, and all the rest. And we treat that as a business. It's just one more industry to make money with. But what if that were, you know, really the center of, of human life? It wouldn't require all that much consumption. It wouldn't require, you know, a, a lot of technology, but it would give us a tremendous amount of of happiness and sense of meaning. But that's just one example of how we could reorient, you know, not just the economy, but, but our, our whole way of life. I think it's really important here to put a historical perspective on your question, Veronica. If you think about the 1960s in North America, we had half the present population and half the income per capita. So already we scaled back by a factor of four, which would be more than sufficient to maintain the planet in its uh, current state. And yet at that time, people registered themselves as feeling happier and more optimistic about the future than we have at present. So there's been a number of books about this. One of them is called The Loss of Happiness in Market Democracies. And what it does is document the steady decline in people's sense of well-being, even as their incomes and consumption has increased since the 60s to the present day. So the, the simple fact of the matter is that human beings are remarkably adaptable. And we've been essentially conned into thinking that growth is the wherewithal of all happiness. And it's simply not true. Richard's a violin player. And I, I'm sure he gets far more psychic benefit from his... I'm a former oboe player, so I understand this uh, profoundly from his participation in musical organizations than he does in accumulating stuff. And we need to go back to a point where our relationships and the things that we do creatively as individuals becomes more important than the accoutrements that we surround ourselves with, the artifacts of our economy, and that we consume mindlessly simply because we're told we should do so. And keep in mind, too, that you know growth is only a 200-year-old phenomenon. It took human beings uh, 250,000 years to reach the first billion people in 1800. And then in just two centuries, we went up by a factor of six or seven. So in one two thousandth as much time, we uh, increased by a factor of seven our population and our, our, our global economy increased um, a hundredfold. So we, we've got an enormous problem here of, of our perception of reality. Um, what we take to be normal, this 2 or 3% per year growth that Richard talked about, is the single most abnormal period in human history. And it's only been going on for a couple of centuries. That's very true. And it also relates to my next question about the overconsumption of energy. 
you know, we're depleting fossil fuels rapidly and we might run out of oil, gas and coal in the next few decades. That's why many people hope that renewable energy sources such as solar and wind will solve our current crisis. How many resources is the renewable energy economy going to require? And what is a realistic time frame for when the global economy could function on majority renewable energy? With fossil fuels, we're extracting these fuels from the earth and burning them once and for all. So it's an extractivist economy. But what many people overlook is that with renewable energy devices like solar panels and wind turbines, again, we have to extract the materials with which to make these things. Yes, the sunlight and the wind are basically free, but the machines we use to capture that energy have to be made from something. And it turns out the, it's, it's a long laundry list of, of materials, all of them depleting everything from lithium for, for batteries to nickel, cobalt, uh, geranium, tellurium, rare earth minerals, indium, gallium, even sand. And in fact, sand is one of the big limiting factors. It's, uh, it's necessary for making uh, concrete, which we use to anchor wind turbines. We also use sand to make uh, silicon for solar panels. And sand is depleting very rapidly. It's even becoming a, a geopolitical factor. Uh, China is cutting off sand supplies to Taiwan in order to disrupt Taiwan's ability to make uh, smartphones. And the scale at which we'd have to make these devices in order to replace our current reliance on fossil fuels is really vast. Uh, we're currently getting you know, less than 5% of our energy from uh, solar and wind. To scale that up, uh, to replace fossil fuels would require you know, massive, uh, uh, not just investment of money, but also uh, massive extraction of, of resources. So how do we have enough? According to some estimates, we have enough to make one generation of all of this new technology. But what do we do then? Because those things are going to wear out. Well, the answer to that is the circular economy. We recycle everything. Well, there's a, a bit of a problem there too, because recycling is never 100% efficient. You always, the materials degrade, you lose some of the material in the process. So there was a French analysis done just recently, uh, assuming full recycling of all these materials, how long could we support society with uh, solar and wind at our current scale of energy usage? And the answer was about 300 years. So that's the best we could hope for, again, at current scale. And scale is the biggest problem. If we were to scale down our energy usage really substantially, we could maintain an electricity grid and all of the benefits that it, that it gives us for quite some time, at least long enough to figure out <laughs> a better alternative. But if we, if we insist on using energy at the current scale, it, we're just you know, running into an, another roadblock, but just by alternative means. We're coming back to the scale and the growth of human population and to the sustainable population. You suggested that the sustainable population could be somewhere between one to three billion 
people. And I could imagine that when you say that, people will ask you, okay, and what's going to happen to the five billion people who are here? According to the latest UN projections, the global population is going to rise. It's going to reach a peak in the 2080s of about 10.4 billion. And it will remain at that level until 2100. So can we even speak about a sustainable population or stabilizing population? First of all, you have to understand that UN predictions, population projections, are based entirely on demographic data, age and sex profiles of the current population. There's no consideration whatsoever of energy shortages, food shortages, or any ecological circumstances that might compromise those projections. So I don't personally believe that the earth at any reasonable standard of living could support even the present population indefinitely, let alone eight to 10 billion people. So what we need is a global uh, population program, uh, particularly uh, non-coercive measures, uh, improved economic circumstances and education for women everywhere, free access to all the means of birth control to get the birth rate down to the same rate as the death rate. It will take a century to level out the human population to a reasonable level. This conversation has been so interesting. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. And so my last question is, what do you recommend to the listeners of this podcast to do? Take this stuff seriously. Uh, Think about it. Research it more for yourself. There's lots of literature out there. And talk to the people around you about it. See if you can break down some of those barriers that keep us from being able to have these conversations. They're difficult conversations. It's like talking about your own mortality. You know, I'm sure most of us have had the experience of a, you know, an elder in our lives who is nearing death, but refused to talk about it and refused to put their affairs in order or make a will or anything because death was just too, too you know, terrible a subject to, to bring up. Well, in many ways, this subject is as difficult as mortality to discuss, but it's even more important because it's not just our own personal mortality that we're discussing. It's the, it's the fate of our species and the fate of, of the planet, really. So it's, uh, it's important that we talk about it and then, you know, identify uh, organizations that are working along these lines, support them. And the most important thing we can do is change the global mindset and understanding of this issue. Until we do that, then it's very unlikely that we'll see, you know, real change. I can only add to that that we have to understand that right now the global political machine, as it were, is being largely controlled by corporate values, the values of growth, profit making, and so on. In fact, in many countries, it's, it's fairly evident that the corporate sector is essentially purchased the governments. I think that's almost true in the United States, if I might say so, where uh, you can hardly distinguish between the, the, the political parties because they're all more or less sponsored by the corporate sector. That will remain the case until ordinary people are marching in the streets in the millions. So if we want to really engage in the kinds of things that Richard was talking about, we have to make the next step to become politically involved. Uh, No democracy can survive with a disengaged, uninformed population. So people have an obligation to speak together, to educate each other about the nature of our mutual dilemma, and then take those concerns directly 
to their elected leaders. And the more people who emphasize that real action has to be taken on behalf of the common good, this is not an individual problem. You know, there's a tendency in our culture to dump this off and blame individuals for everything. What can you do to save the planet? Well, you can do damn little, frankly. It's a collective problem requiring collective solutions, and that means political solutions, and that comes from thousands of people making their values and feelings known to their governments so that they can act on behalf of the common good rather than the corporate interests as they, they have been recently. Richard and Bill, thanks very much for being bold and for talking about these topics that other people shy away from. I know that it must be tough and you've met a lot of criticism from people who want to keep the part going. So heads off to both of you and keep up the good work. Thank you, Veronica. Thank you very much for having us. If you want to learn more about Earth Overshoot and the transition to a more resilient, equitable and sustainable world, check out the links in the show notes. Thank you for listening to Population 8 Billion, a podcast that helps you better understand what a world of 8 billion people means for the planet, the environment and the future of our diverse societies. If you like this episode, please help us spread the word on social media. And if you don't want to miss another episode, subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. In our next interview, we're going to talk to Nandita Bajaj, the executive director of Population Balance, about the hidden forces of pronatalism and a world in which all women and girls should be free in their reproductive choices. For more information, visit populationmedia.org. I'm Veronika Perkova and I look forward to talking to you soon. Ah!